Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Dara, are you on your phone? I'm not on my phone. Is this your fault? Don't don't be yeah. on your phone in a movie. I don't theater. go to movies. Well, see, I mean, see, that's... I'm a different part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, see, you're the real problem. I no, need I'm definitely like not you the... to go no, to the movies so that there's a robust movie going economy for me to visit when I get a babysitter. <laughs> uh, something tells me that people like me who don't go to movies because we can fake our way through them reading a bunch of content about movies on the internet are not really the problem <laughs> hey, here. I appreciate that as a person who makes a living writing content about movies. Ask me how many F9 pieces I've read. <laughs> Ask me whether I'm going to see F9. It is a lot of fun, I gotta say. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by ProPublica's Dara Lind and also by Alyssa Wilkinson. She is a film critic and senior cultural reporter for Vox.com, a new guest on the Weeds, taking advantage of maybe the world of politics being somewhat less insane than it usually is to, you know, broaden our, our ambit of topics. Um, you know, this is not a not a movies podcast, but, you know, something I've seen in the economy is that the movie theater sector has been one of the not just hardest hit by the pandemic, but slowest to recover. I guess F9 is maybe mm-hmm. pulling us out of the funk. eventually. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, this is an interesting time for movies as a as an industry, yeah. they, because the pandemic has intersected with technological changes. And as we're going to discuss some policy changes as well that have implications for sort of how we can rebuild and you know maybe you can just sort of help us see at a at a high level like what's what's been going on over the past year and a half yeah well as you recall we had a pandemic and that meant that movie theaters were shut down in major markets like New York and LA basically for a year they just reopened in New York i believe in April and kind of similar in Los Angeles and in most of the country where they were open they were open at reduced capacity and there were also not a lot of movies to show <laughs> because big movie studios you know they need to make a lot of money off of these movies which means they want full capacity theaters and they want the ability to you know like have people come see their movies so you know like Black Widow's opening shortly that got moved out of less 
spring, I believe, F9 was supposed to come out last summer. It's coming out now. A Quiet Place Part 2 did really well in theaters. That was supposed to come out. It got moved. I spent probably a week just reporting out all of the <laughs> cancellations and moving. And like the James Bond movie has moved like three times. So that's a problem for theaters. They don't make as much money off of showing the movies as you might expect. They really make a lot of money off of concessions, like the bulk of their <laughs> money mm-hmm. off of concessions. And that's an added problem when you have people who are uncomfortable with like maybe they'll be in a theater and they'll wear a mask, but they're uncomfortable with people around them taking it off to eat. So a lot of places like wouldn't even sell concessions. Because it's like what well, with, with a new movie, it's like 90 percent of the ticket revenue. Yes. Goes to the distri- I, whoever owns the movie. right? Yeah. So from the theater's perspective, it's a loss leader for candy. That's right. Yeah. And sometimes like if a movie holds over past maybe three or four weeks, the share grows for the theater. They'll make mm-hmm. more money. But very few movies last very long in theaters anymore. I mean, I can remember when Titanic came out. I was a teenager. But when Titanic came out, it was in theaters for more than a year. <laughs> and even the most popular movie of all uh, like of for the decade would never be in a theater for a year that simply does not happen anymore and so studios in response you know they're taking larger and larger shares and like disney can throw its weight around and say we're putting the new marvel movie out we want 90 percent of the revenue and we're going to take it for a month mm-hmm. so it ends up being something of a downward spiral for yes. the movie theaters themselves yes so theaters react basically by, you know, selling subscriptions now, raising ticket prices and selling a lot of expensive, bad concessions for the most part. Although it is interesting how many theaters were implementing like gourmet menus kind of as a result of this. AMC has like a specialty gourmet menu now. at Yeah, the, food, the food's gotten better. You gotten know, better. It's... Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're at the Times Square Regal, uh, where I seem to eat a lot of my dinners in normal times because they have screenings there. The popcorn still sucks. So that's a thing that is happening. And of course, that was a real problem when there weren't people in theaters for various reasons. Another thing that happened is it was already planned that a whole bunch of streaming services were going to launch last summer. This was already on the docket. So Disney Plus was slated to launch. Peacock was supposed to launch with the Olympics last year. Now, no Olympics, Olympics, but they launched. (laughs) They're coming. Um, You know, there's other ones too. Paramount Plus kind of became a thing, HBO Max. So all of these were supposed to launch last summer, but the pandemic really made them kind of front and center. Like I was wondering if in a hundred years we're going to remember it as the pandemic happened and thus they launched. But that (laughs) crowded the world of streaming a huge amount because before... You know, you had like maybe Netflix and like Hulu and maybe you had HBO Now or something. But now if you want to see Disney movies, you're going to subscribe to Disney Plus because that's where they are. And if you want to see um, Warner Brothers movies, you need to be on HBO Max. And so, you know, like my streaming budget is off the wall. But I think for most people, they're (laughs) picking and choosing, you know, I'm going to subscribe to Disney Plus for this month so I can watch Hamilton and then maybe I'll cancel it and go get a subscription to something else. So streaming has also become kind of the top of the org chart for some companies during this time. Like Paramount is now reorganized to be streaming first. Disney has kind of made it clear that they think of themselves as a streaming first company with a theatrical business. And I think, I mean, I think this is sort of a good general principle, right? When we think about, you know, like how will the pandemic change society, right? And like probably most things 
go back, right? Yeah. But also there are trends that were happening yes, before exactly. the pandemic. Like every movie studio wants to launch a streaming service. Yes. And you naturally have a conflict in the organization, right? It's like the streaming executive wants to get the new movie into his distribution channel as mm -hmm. soon as possible. Maybe the traditional guy in charge of features has his own set of relationships, his own set of priorities. He doesn't want to do that. But mm -hmm. now, like, you can't put Hamilton out in the theater. So right. obviously, the streaming guy wins. So actually, yes. you redraw the org chart. And now, even though you can go see uh, James Bond, uh, the next uh, Dune for me in, yes. in theaters, it's like the power dynamic has shifted. And the Completely. question of should we just put this on streaming simultaneously or put it in theaters like two days? Of, there, there's like there's some Oscar rule, right? Where you want to be like in technical compliance. Yeah, the Oscars had to change their rules last year and said that a moot because right now you have to have a theatrical release for one week in New York and LA. But right now the rule is also if your movie premiered on streaming, but it was intended for theatrical release, then it's eligible. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and they haven't changed it back. But yeah, I mean, that's a consideration for a lot of people. Right. And on top of it, companies, you know, they don't make ticket sales off of streamed movies necessarily. Although Disney has this like premiere thing where you can pay 30 bucks to have access to Black Widow forever. But you know, there's no like, <laughs> they take the whole thing, right? There's no like, um, there's no dealing with theaters. There's no middleman in that framework and they really like that well and they get access to like layers of consumer data that they don't yes. get directly from theaters i assume yes right it's harder to collect that kind of consumer data which is actually something movie pass was trying to game back in the halcyon days of movie pass but that didn't go so well and conversely we in the press don't get the right i mean like nope. we're used to having <laughs> box office and ratings but like actually yes. we now have no idea who's watching anything no we're taking their word for it i think we can trust their subscriber numbers right you know because those are fairly easy to verify and they have to tell investors about those but when they tell us how many people watched a movie it often seems really fake and there is a reason for that like so <laughs> netflix i remember i think it was bird box when that movie came out with sandra bullock they were like look this movie I'm making up a number here, but it was somewhere in the range of they were like, this would have been a $300 million opening weekend if it was in theaters. And I was like, that seems wrong. Nothing makes that much money in the first weekend domestic. And then it turned out that Netflix's metric, and they say this publicly, they're like, if someone watches more than two minutes of a movie, we count it as a watch. <laughs> <laughs> so if you watch three minutes of Bird Box and then we're like, I can't watch this and turned it off or just got distracted or flipped to the office or something there, they count you as having watched the film in the same way as if you buy a $17 movie ticket and go to the Times Square Regal to watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's not just the time watched, right? But it's like, I have HBO Max. Mm -hmm. So when Wonder Woman 84 came out yeah like i i put it on. i i was curious enough to watch it and then mm -hmm. like i turned it off halfway through because i didn't like it yep. um then you know in the throes of pandemic like i did watch the entire Zack snyder justice league <laughs> over four nights but like that was just so i could have something to talk about like i i wouldn't have paid money to see that it was a million hours long and bad yeah, I mean, you know, just anecdotally, my mom, who is not a TV or film watcher ever in my entire life, has watched 
tons and tons of stuff in the past year just because it was there. And maybe she wouldn't have gone to the theater to see it, but she totally would watch it on a streaming service. And like one kind of effect of that, which maybe once this is a slightly less captured audience, we might, you know, this might balance out a little bit, but it's made it very difficult to tell the difference between streaming services and, you know, like content creators promoting things to the home, you know, making things easiest to just sit and watch because they actually have granular data on you as a consumer versus because they have audience level data that suggests that this is very popular versus they're deliberately promoting the stuff that they think is going to hook you into their intellectual property. You know, the kind of Marvel, the MCU TV shows on Disney Plus being a great example of this, like it's genuinely unclear the extent to which these are themselves audience phenomena versus if you are someone who might consider unsubscribing from Disney Plus in the next month, but you know you need to stay subscribed in order to continue to consume MCU content, that's a stronger hook for you. And therefore, there's a much stronger incentive for them to promote these this content that might not otherwise even be doing that well. Yes, exactly. And, you know, one true thing is that you see all of the streamers playing with different methods. So it's clear they don't really know what works yet. So WandaVision, for instance, comes out week by week, or The Mandalorian. And that's actually a model that hasn't been used for streaming TV in a while. Netflix kind of popularized the full season drop. Did it work? I don't know. But Disney Plus is probably like it's grown the fastest of all the new streamers, partly because of its back catalog, partly because it's family friendly, and they advertise themselves that way. And there are a lot of people who really needed family friendly content quick. But, you know, we sort of see like different. So Netflix, uh, for instance, used to be, I can say as a person who writes about Netflix, that putting Netflix in the headline used to get all kinds of traffic because everyone had Netflix and everyone was interested in movies going to be on Netflix. And they have lost a huge amount of their market share, 31% their market share dropped in a year. So they're not losing as many subscribers, but they're kind of on the precipice of people being like, I don't need Netflix because they don't have any franchises that I want or they don't have original content that I think is worthy of my time as opposed to HBO Max, you know, or Disney Plus or I know Peacock is going to be an interesting one because most people agree that Peacock is kind of a bummer of a service right now, but they do have really good original content and they will have the Olympics and that may actually mean something for their subscriber base. So there's a lot of that kind of interesting stuff going on in the streaming world. Yeah, and it's basically upended the hierarchy. And then on top of all of that, we've had this kind of crazy uh, policy-related thing happen that I, I think flew under a lot of people's radars. Yeah, so let's take a break, and then let's talk about that. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. 
You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So, yeah, I mean, I'll just, uh, you know, introduce this before turning it over to you. But I think people don't think about this so, so closely. But, you know, just like now, we constantly have people talking about antitrust regulation of social media companies, et cetera, et cetera. Generations ago, like Mm -hmm. we also had new media and we had a regulatory framework for it. Mm -hmm. And that regulatory framework has actually changed pretty drastically uh, recently in ways whose implications I think we haven't yet seen play out. So what's up? Yeah. So there's two things to know just kind of off the bat that are big picture. One is that the film industry is not very old. (laughs) It's really been around for like 100 years and change. And it's always been driven by technological changes. Everything that's ever happened in movies culturally has been driven by technological changes, whether it was getting sound movies or color or TVs being developed or VHS streaming now. So just keep that in mind. The other thing to know is that as opposed to a lot of countries, the US government has very, very little involvement in Hollywood. And there have been separately like other movements to make sure that that happens. Like there are points of connection, but there are very few regulations on the books. I think a lot of people don't know that, like, for instance, the rating system, the MPA ratings, uh, PG and R and PG-13, mm-hmm. those are not legal at all. There's nothing about them that's in the law. That's different from even the UK, where they're actually in the law. And this is like preemptive self-regulation, right? Yes, it's like, exactly. It's like Congress was yelling Yes. And they were like, "Okay, guys, we'll take care of it. Right. Instead of establishing like an official film censorship uh, organization. Even when there was a censorship thing happening, which is called the code. I can't even possibly get into that. The kind of Hayes Code production code for decades went on. But that was a self-censorship thing, too. Mm -hmm. And so there have been little legal uh, there have been little local regulations here and there in different states and localities. But in general, it's important to remember that the government doesn't get involved in Hollywood's business. Hollywood likes it that way in general. Okay, so there is sort of one big exception to this, which is something called the Paramount Decrees. And this could go, I was going to say way into the weeds, which I guess is kind of the point, (laughs) right? But this could get very specific. But I'll just kind of explain what the Paramount Decrees did. So back in Hollywood's golden age is what we usually call it. There was something called like the studio system and major studios. Paramount was the biggest at the time, which is why they're kind of on the on the regulation. They owned the entire pipeline 
of movies. So they signed these really huge exclusive contracts with stars and talent. Um, So if you were an actor in a movie for Paramount, you couldn't, unless there was a lot of wheeling and dealing, you really couldn't go be in a movie for some other studio. And you might make like 15 of them a year, which was a lot. So that was true. Then they owned all the means of production. They owned the studios. They owned the writers, essentially. They had little offices that they went to work on. And then they owned the film. Sometimes they actually own the company that produced the film, like the actual physical film that the movie was printed on. And they also distributed the movies themselves. And often they owned theaters that they put the movies into. So they own the entire thing. And it's just, you know, kind of classical vertical integration. They also had a practice called block booking. So block booking was where a studio perhaps you know, say I own a movie theater uh, in the 1930s and I want to get Mary Pickford's new movie because Mary Pickford is a huge box office draw and I want it in my theater so I can make some money from it. So I would approach Paramount and say, hey, like I want the next Mary Pickford movie. How much does it cost to license the film? And block booking was where they would say, we'll sell you the license, but you also have to, along with this license, pay for a license to these other 10 films that we have. Some of them might have been made already. (laughs) In a lot of cases, they weren't. It was just like, this is the title and like the log line and we haven't made it yet. But when it comes out, you need to show it. So theater owners didn't love this for a couple of reasons. One was, I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten that in the 20s in particular, people were extremely suspicious of Hollywood morals in a way that they're not right now, even though there's a lot of that floating around. There was the feeling that Hollywood was like actively trying to corrupt the youth of America. And so without having seen the film or kind of knowing what's in it, people don't want to license the film because they say like, maybe I can't show it in my town or people will get mad at me, whatever. So that was a problem. (laughs) And a bigger problem was if you have, say, four screens in your movie theater and you're forced to license 11 movies at a time, you've just tied up at least one of your screens for a long time. <laughs> um, like you have less choice about other stuff you might want to program from other studios or from independent producers who are working outside the studio system. So this had implications for theater owners who don't want their screens tied up and for independent producers who might find themselves in a position where they can't get their movies into first run theaters because those first run theaters are essentially spoken for for like a year. And this is a bummer. So for the theater owners, they might have to forego a big earner in order to not get block booking or they might book it but not be able to get other stuff of interest. They can't engage in targeted programming. Mm-hmm. There is an argument that co- that block booking was good because it was a guaranteed cash flow to the studio and that cash flow let them take a risk on other individual movies i don't know the classic (laughs) pro-corporate regulation helps or deregulation helps r&d argument yeah Yeah. i mean it's it's i actually think this is something we see in a in a lot of like mid-century political economy right so like the car companies are very concentrated in detroit and the car dealerships have a dispersed ownership. Mm. So they, you know, we have a regulatory framework that supports the existence of independent car dealerships, right? Like all across the country because they have their own member of Congress. And like this was the same thing, right? The, the ownership of the movie theaters was more dispersed. The political system is dispersed. You know, we, we moved to create rules for better or worse that helped preserve theaters as freestanding 
businesses in different communities rather than be as centralized. Like the production of movies is incredibly centralized, right? But like theater display, at least traditionally, was very, very diffuse. Except, <laughs> except <laughs> when it wasn't. So this was the problem with the vertical integration specifically. So there was a story that was told in one of the filings, and I'll just tell it now, which is there was an independent theater owner in Middleton, New York, and he rejected a five-year block booking deal with Paramount. They wanted to have him take movies over five years. And Paramount essentially retaliated. And the way they did this was they built a theater they owned across the street from his, and they cut their ticket prices below his and just ran him out of business. So yes, this is competition. There's different arguments, economic, I'm no economist, but I know there are different arguments for like the goodness, badness or rightness of this. But it did mean that independent theater owners were finding themselves competing with. So even if he had booked the Paramount films, Paramount still could have built a theater across the street. And because it's their theater, they would charge less and what they would sometimes do is tell indie theater owners, yeah, you can have our movie, but you're required to charge 15 bucks for it, or, you know, it's probably like $3. And we're going to charge 10 because they're not cutting, they're not making a cut. Uh, they're making the whole ticket price. And so they were basically cornering the whole market. They were doing another practice called circuit dealing, which is basically entering into blanket license agreements that cover a whole region. But the people who were suffering were independent theater owners, independent producers, and the people who were served by the independent theaters. And, you know, a thing to keep in mind about independent theaters, like if you live in a major metropolitan area, you probably think of them as like fancy art house theaters. But for a lot of the country then and now, independent theaters are mom and pop shops with really small profit margins who are really focused on the community and on serving the community with movies they're interested in. So, you know, there are regions where, for instance, a Christian movie might do really well in the theater or a movie about like a particular topic, a documentary about something that actually affects that community or a film from a country where maybe you have a large Ukrainian population and you want to have a film that's of interest to them, but it might not be of interest anywhere else. A megaplex tends not to pay attention to that as much. But even back then, like a studio owning the only theater in town means that they're only going to play their movies there. So your selection gets lower. And this is in a time before television, home video, streaming, all of these things. So you were basically only seeing whatever Paramount said you could see. <laughs> but then it changed. And then it changed. So <laughs> this took decades. But the kind of end version of it is the FTC investigated, the government brought an antitrust lawsuit against the big eight, which was like eight big, well, it was actually five big studios and three mini majors. And they outlawed vertical integration and block booking. This happened in 1948. It's the Supreme Court case of US versus Paramount Pictures. And that meant that studios had to divest themselves of their theaters. They could no longer engage in block booking. And it basically made it so that a studio deals with a theater by theater basis. And theaters are able to do the same. And this is like a, I mean, a, a version of like, you know, an Elizabeth Warren. Yes. Tackling big tech kind of thing. Uh, but it was in, you know, I mean, it was in a different period in American sort of economic thought. Right. Yes. Um, and then what's interesting is these rules you were telling us before. So like Disney, which is the 
I don't know, the paramount of our times, right? The the, the biggest movie theater. Yeah, right. But so this rule, this because there, there was a, a like a, a settlement that ended the litigation and these rules never formally applied to them, but they sort of followed them anyway. Right. I mean, there, there was like a, a sense that like, OK, people didn't want to test the waters around these rules once it had kind of shaken out and we started having movie theater chains that were separate companies from, from the movie studios. So these principles sort of govern beyond the letter of the law. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the companies that were actually kind of part of this were Paramount, obviously, Columbia, Warner Brothers, Universal, MGM, United Artists, 20th Century Fox and RKO. Some of those no longer exist. 20th Century Fox is technically now a subsidiary of Disney. MGM is not considered a major. It's a mini major now. Like there's there's been a lot of <laughs> reorganization in Hollywood since then. And one, yeah, Disney was not covered by the decrees. I just went and looked up Disney's market share just to make sure I had this right. And in 2019, we can't really count 2020 as anything right now, statistically in the movie business. But in 2019, which is when Disney acquired Fox, Disney as a company owned if you add Fox, 38% of all box office receipts in the U.S. So that means that the other 60% were split between Universal, Warner Brothers, Sony, Paramount, Netflix, Lionsgate, MGM, DreamWorks, all the, A24, Neon, Focus, like all of these other companies, 40%. Nearly half of it was Disney. And a lot of that is because they own the MCU. They own Star Wars. They own Pixar. <laughs> they own <Right. laughs> like awards vehicles, right? I mean, it was really bizarre to interact with Nomadland knowing that technically this was a Disney movie <laughs> because it's a Fox movie. Right. Yeah. So they weren't technically covered. And, you know, people would poke at it a little bit over the decades. Um, we had kind of the rise of independent art house theater in the 70s with movies like Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde. You know, there's a lot going on in the 80s with a deregulation push. There was kind of a relaxation of the rule, which was that you can buy a theater, but you have to ask for permission. And you have to prove that it's not going to basically be a monopoly in some way. So Disney does own the El Capitan, I believe, in L.A. Right now, Netflix has long-term leases on a theater in historic theaters in New York and L.A. There's a couple right. of... Those are big cities, and you own them basically so you can like stage your events for the industry, for the, for the press, right? I mean, whereas the concern was like, you know... There's only one movie theater in Bangor, Maine, and it might be owned by Paramount, and then you can only watch their movies, right? And yeah. that, that hasn't been possible. And I, I looked up information about the current um, kind of theater screen situation, which we were we we were discussing. And so again, this is this is actually a 2020 number, which surprises me. But from what I can tell, so there were about 40,000 movie screens total in the U.S. in 2009, just under 40,000. And in 2020, there was 44,000. So there's actually more screens, but nearly 20,000 of those are owned by three chains, AMC, Regal, and Cinemark. Mm -hmm. So the other half are independent. Sometimes it's like an independent mini chain or like a regional chain, but they're independent um, from those big companies. And Maybe a more interesting number is that in 2020, there were about 5,800 cinema sites in the U.S., which is like a place where a theater exists. That's been about the same for 10 years. But in the late mid to late 1990s, 
that number was much higher. It was almost it was 7,744 7, and 95. So we've actually lost about 2,000 places where a movie theater existed. And some of that is obviously having to do with home video and streaming and just like people, the theater wasn't making much money to begin with and they weren't, people weren't going to the theater and the margin got too small. But if you think about that, it means that there might be more movie screens but there are fewer cities or towns or villages in which you can go to the movies. So more people are having to drive further to go somewhere if they want to go to the movies. And that, I think, kind of goes back to what we were saying about the barrier to entry with streaming is like pretty low, right? Like I definitely will take a chance on a movie that I don't know if I'll like. Well, I'm not going to use myself as an example, but a normal person would take a chance <laughs> on a movie that they don't know if they'll like. If it's going to be on their TV and they can shut it off in three minutes, they might not spend 15 bucks and carve out a night and get a babysitter and like plan the whole thing if they're not sure they want to see the movie. That's a, you know, fairly. And I, I blame nobody for that. That makes perfect sense to me. A lot of movie theaters kind of suck <laughs> to go to, right? They're like dirty and loud and they're not projected properly and people are on their phones. So all of that seems like normal human behavior. So it seems like this is kind of one of those situations where thanks to technological uh, and like an economic transformation in the industry, the regulation is like a little less relevant than it was yes. 50 years ago anyway. Right. So that is certainly what the Department of Justice in 2020 uh, decided and also a district court judge, Annalisa Torres. So in August of 2020, and this made huge waves in the film world and basically nobody else noticed, but like a lot was going on last summer. Basically, the DOJ and Judge Torres agreed together that there was so much technological change going on right now that the old decrees were outdated and struck them and said, you know, there's a lot of antitrust legislation out there. We think it covers it. So that and that all makes sense to me. There is also if you read the if you read the filing as a person who actually works in the industry, a lot of it sounds very naive. <laughs> so there's this line about how distributors today, the internet streaming companies, as it says, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, those are kind of the big three right now who acquire and distribute movies. You know, she says, of course, those companies are not actually subject to the decrees technically because they didn't exist in 1948, but also that they don't show propensity to acquire major movie theater circuits or engage in the type of collusive practices the decrees targeted. And she included Disney in that sentence, too. And I would say if you put Disney and Amazon next to each other and say they don't seem like companies that are going to acquire major movie theater chains or engage in collusive practices, that seems wrong to me. I'd be I would love to be wrong about this. But I also know that Amazon was sniffing around potentially buying up some smaller theater chains. They have a kind of vested interest in doing that, right? Yeah. In general, if Amazon and Disney are your are, are your go tos for these, don't seem like companies <laughs> that would spread out into new industries in order to in, to consolidate their competitive advantage. Like, and, I mean, and it is yeah, not. Exactly. <laughs> I will say that this is not the first time in legal history that lawyers have you know have have kind of in order to make their case engaged in readings of it like. For every time a lawyer reads an, a journalistic article and goes, that's I, I know how this works and that isn't how that works. We uh -huh. do the same thing for you guys. So Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, the ruling actually went on to say, in today's landscape, although there may be some geographic areas with only a single one-screen theater, most markets have multiple movie theaters with multiple screens simultaneously showing multiple movies from multiple distributors. That's a lot of multiples. I also don't... I would dispute that just given those numbers that I was citing earlier. And also, it seems a little naive about the many distributors that exist today. Like, there's only kind of more of them. A24 didn't exist five or six years ago. They've had Oscar winners. Um, You know, Moonlight. Neon distributes a lot of really popular films. They're a really small company. Um, they also distribute documentaries, right? Um, they had a Apollo 11 a couple years ago, which is like a really incredible movie that made a lot of money. It's a documentary. Is it going to compete with an MCU film? No. Are there regions where that film was super popular? Absolutely, there were. So even if you have three screens in your local indie theater, if the Paramount of today or whoever it is comes in and kind of buys up one of those screens with block booking, you've just reduced the number of documentaries or foreign films or, you know, special interest films that could be shown or even just movies that your theater owner knows will do well and that the community wants to see. So the the ruling really basically says, like, you guys just need to work in good faith and existing antitrust laws should cover things. So the results of this decree are that vertical integration is now allowed again. They can buy theaters. Uh, Block booking is allowed. And this could have, I think, so for people who live in major metropolitan areas and like to go to the movies occasionally, the results of this may not be very clear. Like I have (laughs) an infinite number of theaters I can go to and see anything I want in New York. And New York is probably the best city for this in the US. But like, if you're in LA, you still have a bunch of theaters to go to. If you're in DC, if you're in Chicago or Austin or something like that. But I'm, you know, I'm thinking of like, a colleague, you know, who maybe has family who live in Kansas or in Tennessee or something like that. And they already have to drive to go to the theater to see a big MCU movie. But in their local theater, they might be able to see like, a nomad land type thing. Mm-hmm. That's probably not a great example, but a sound of metal, right? Uh, just like a, a great movie that really benefits from being seen on the big screen. This could have huge implications, mainly for people in less populous areas and people with less access already to movies. It also could easily run some independent theaters just completely out of business because they can't afford the cost of doing business. They're already struggling right now, right? They're barely getting by. A lot of them have closed over the pandemic year, this is kind of like the worst timing for this to happen. And, you know, there's fewer risks, like there's fewer choices, we might find a world where there's fewer movies available to us to watch in a theater. Not everybody cares about that. (laughs) But a lot of people do. And certainly the industry does. And certainly filmmakers do, right? Well, but so I guess the, the case I would make on the other side of this, right, is that like, the theater universe was kind of in this tailspin of -hmm. decline previously and at least my my optimistic take on this would be that letting people go back to vertical integration because the streaming services are so vertically integrated helps rebalance the priorities between 
theaters and, and streaming. Right. So Netflix obviously like makes original movies just to program on Netflix. Yeah. But then because they want to be eligible for the Oscars, they sort of have a theater in New York and a theater in LA. And they will mm -hmm. like say, okay, Show I'm going <laughs> to premiere The Irishman here. Yes. But that's just to comply with the Academy Awards, right? And we could have gone down a spiral where like that's all movies are. Right. We're like, yeah. there's just this kind of like fake bubble in yeah. New York and Los Angeles yes. to like serve the ego of industry professionals that it's like, we're still making movies, mm -hmm. but like, actually, you're not. Right. Which is actually because an interesting, like, if you think about the different, you know, the trends in kind of the ways in which movies are used for sensory stuff, like the the trend towards 3D and major movie releases, for example, stuff that like is absolutely not replicable on streaming given current technology. Right. It would be interesting to see a world where, oh. conversely, the only <laughs> things that were designed to be viewed in a theater were Oscar bait. Mm -hmm. um, oh yeah, but, right. <laughs> no, but I mean, I just mean it's like, but if you if you let you know movie studios fully internalize the. The, the revenue, right, one way or the other, then they're not. I mean, I obviously everybody's still going to be interested in their streaming services, but like, it, I I feel like it could almost help preserve, you know, traditional windowing longer and like, yeah, like I don't know. It's true. Like in a world of streaming, like I think small towns probably won't have movie theaters, mm -hmm. but like, Houston is not a small town and like the economics of movie theaters work perfectly fine there it's just not relevant for sort of like award show compliance type right. stuff and i mean i don't know i mean this is like a little far afield of our normal ways <laughs> but i just like i like movie theaters <laughs> and like see movies on the big screen like i i don't i don't want to watch dune in my living room no. with my like weird unbalanced light effects coming in through my window and stuff like that. Like, I don't know. That yeah. would be, I, I think for fussy aesthetic reasons, sure. I think we need to save movie theaters and that vertical integration might be the way to accomplish that. I mean, you know, the flip side is that theaters don't make money off of those movies usually. Like, <laughs> True. you know, and this is the thing, like they make their money off their big hitters and then they have kind of the space <laughs> um, to, <laughs> to show the ones that are only ever going to sell out to a 33 percent crowd but those people are really committed to coming to the theater and they're maybe there like four times a week right um and i think you know the other thing is like for some people going to the movies and i think this is kind of what you're saying matt it's certainly true for me is not just your only aim is not to see a film it is also to like have the experience of like going and doing an activity with some people and it's i always say you know compare going to movies with going to a concert it's still much cheaper. That experience won't be preserved. And a lot of filmmakers would argue that as good an experience as you can have watching a movie on your TV screen, it isn't what they intended when they made the movie. And and that changes the movie you watched. I, I'm very curious for people who watched, I don't know, In the Heights on their TVs versus people who saw it in a theater. You just watched a different movie, basically. <laughs> you had a totally different experience. It's not just about the content. It's about the whole entire viewing experience that you've had. Or, yeah, or on your phone. I mean, God forbid, but it happens, right? <laughs> um, you know, movies, and this is the thing, movies are, are a visual medium. You know, you can have a movie with no plot. You can have a movie with no sound. You can have, you know, <laughs> you can't have a movie with no pictures. And... 
the content world and the move towards everything being content is really about you enjoying the plot, which is all well and good. But really, at the end of the day, like if you're not seeing everything on the screen, you're having a different experience. I watched Metropolitan on my phone yesterday. (laughs) It's fascinating (laughs) that you mentioned the kind of concert comparison, Alyssa, because I was actually thinking about popular music in along different lines, right? That they're among audiophiles. There's this really robust argument that audio streaming is a terrible way to listen to a lot of different kinds of music Mm -hmm. and that, you know, you really do need to have the hi-fi and the quality, like the adjustable bass and that sort of thing. And what we've seen is that those people aren't enough to really sustain major markets in direct music distribution uh, that a lot of people just don't care about the acoustic quality all that much. Mm -hmm. And that music kind of as like as a live events industry is on the one hand sustaining, you know, some of the kind of like mass appeal pop rock country through these elevated ticket prices that you're talking about. And on the other hand, stuff like EDM, where a the acoustic loss isn't that much anyway, because it's essentially being played off the same thing you would listen to it. And B, where it's not just about hearing the music, but also, you know, dancing and Uh the the full like, lights and all of that experience that doesn't that it's not it's not clear that the you know, while there is a value out of seeing things on a big screen and seeing them with other people, it's not clear that it's that big an experiential difference. Mm -hmm. So I'm Mm -hmm. really wondering if the, you know, the film people of today who are saying you are not seeing the same movie I am are going to sound like the folks who insist that you really need to you know, listen to Radiohead on in like the original vinyl <laughs> limited pressing, right, uh, right? That kind of thing, and it raises interesting questions because mm-hmm. it's not just music. Going to live sporting events is fairly expensive now, mm-hmm. and the argument to be, you know, the argument that can be made there is that a lot of people who don't necessarily want to spend that kind of money on a live sporting event can just catch it on television anyway. Yes. That's not the same, like, <laughs> that's not the same experience yep. at all, but it's definitely a kind of, it allows for the sustainability of the two-tiered cost model without a lot yeah. of people going, gee, sports fandom is really expensive now. <laughs> yes. So I do wonder how much of this is going to be able to transmit to movies where yeah. really, while it is a different experience, it's a less different experience than <laughs> seeing people in front of you live versus watching them on a screen. Right, right. And there are certainly movies for which the experience of watching it in a theater is less different. I'm trying to think if I got those negatives right. But, you know, I always think of one of the like best movie going experiences I've ever had, which was I went to see Get Out at the press screening, the first press screening. And it was a packed press screening. And we were all there expecting another kind of movie. And it started and you could feel the excitement build in the room. And it wasn't because we were journalists. It's just because we were suddenly all really excited moviegoers. And then it's on top of everything. It's both a comedy and a horror film. Two two kinds of movies that you really need to see with other people. Most of the especially comedies. I mean, laughing in your living room by yourself is just not quite the same thing as laughing in a room full of people who are just like losing their minds right over how funny something is. 
that's different than watching a very quiet drama, <laughs> you know, or a film that's maybe not from your culture, not in your language. And so you're kind of like running through an extra layer there. So, yeah, I don't know. But, you know, what is true is what people pay for currently to go see are Star Wars movies and superhero movies and F9. And, you know, those are the big earners every year. Disney had seven out of 10 of the highest earners in 2019 um, at the box office. And I think we're figuring out right now whether having it streaming available is going to change that. Like, in the Heights didn't open very big. I would argue it's partly because it was on people's TVs. There's other reasons, but I think that's one of them. F9 is not going to be on people's TVs. A Quiet Place Part 2, not on people's TVs. That movie made a lot of money in the movie theater, and it's a horror film, and it's a sound design horror film. So there are a lot of factors here that the industry is really trying to figure out, but the striking of the Paramount decrees could be really bad for the American film industry, all the parts of it that aren't giant media conglomerates. Or it could turn out that it saves it because we just weren't anticipating this pandemic blip in the middle of it. And all of this is sort of up in the air and a big question at the moment, but we'll definitely know more. So the Paramount decrees are being sunset. So the striking actually takes sort of takes effect in 2022. So that's when we're going to start to see some interesting stuff happen. And I think for most people, it will just be interesting. They won't even notice that it's happening. But for a lot of you know, if you closely observe the industry, things will start to change. All right, let's let's take a break here. I can see, you know, Dara's itching to pivot to sports. I am. Um, I just want to talk finally, about baseball. We've got, I really we've got just not, just, not just a white paper, but a white paper about baseball. So and take a break and then Dara's going to explain it to us. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. All right, so uh, this week's white paper is titled The Dynamics of Inattention in the Peren Baseball Close Peren Field, uh, which is an economics joke about this being data that is collected not in an experimental setting, but in real life settings, LOL. Uh, it's by James E. Archsmith, Anthony Hayes, Matthew J. Nidal, and Bhavan N. Sampat. Uh, my apologies per usual to any of those names that I have mispronounced. The paper points out, as the kind of pun in the title implies, that a lot of the research on attention and how people choose to allocate their attention, whether it's kind of a, a finite or an infinite resource, takes place, has like been collected in experimental settings. And this is the sort of thing where you don't necessarily know if that's going to replicate super well in real life situations where there are, you know, it's where people aren't mentally set up to be doing a thing. They're just kind of going about their everyday lives. And they use in order to kind of test how attention works in, you know, in people's real life, they use umpire ball and strike calls because they have a lot of data. There are a lot of baseball games a year. Uh, there are a lot of pitches in each game. And thanks to technological advancement, there is pretty accurate and frankly, real time pitch monitoring that projects the strike zone and can tell you 
pretty immediately whether the umpire has correctly identified a ball as being within the strike zone or not. Uh, and so they use this, they develop measures of how important any call is to the outcome of a game. And then they look at whether the umpire's accuracy rate you know, changes as the game goes on, as circumstances get more or less important. The ultimate findings are that there is a certain amount of depletion of attention, uh, that if you're, if that, that umpires will deliberately, well, that umpires will be more accurate in higher leverage situations generally, but that if they have to make some high leverage calls early in a half inning, they are less likely to get in to remain accurate as that inning goes on. Conversely, if they expect there to be higher leverage calls later, they might be a little more loosey-goosey in the beginning. But they find that this attention kind of resets within half innings, that, you know, there's not a great deal of kind of fatigue and inaccuracy in the seventh inning of a game versus the first, which strongly suggests that, yes, you do have a finite amount of attention and you have to budget it, you know, consciously, but all it takes is like a couple of minutes for a commercial break in, in order to, you know, gather your attention and kind of reset to very close to where you started. This is... It's interesting to me, not just because of like conversations around the continued relevance of having human umpires call balls and strikes in an era where we can tell the, you know, what the objective right call would have been, but also because Major League Baseball itself is thinking about the attention problem from a very different angle, right? Not from the perspective of employees, but from the perspective of consumers. Major League Baseball in recent years has become really obsessed with what's called pace of play. Uh, the idea that baseball games are too long and that they are too slow, which, and some of the changes that they've made are kind of decreasing the amount of time between, like, if you, if you think about it in the framework of this paper, they're decreasing the amount of time between umpires having to make decisions by decreasing the amount of time between pitches, for example, or they're decreasing, like, the, you know, the number of breaks in the middle of an inning so that, you know, there are just the half inning breaks. But there are also some decisions that really that that mean that more of the decisions an umpire is making are going to be higher leverage, like starting last season in extra in any inning, you know, beyond the ninth, like if the game is tied, the inning will the half inning will start with a runner already on second base, which automatically means that runner is more likely to score this any any situation from that point forward is going to be higher leverage than it would have been with the bases empty. And so I think that there's there's a question here of a, how does fans' tolerance for missed calls affect their enjoyment of a baseball game one way or the other? Like, I personally think that it's a little bit weird to think about an umpire making a bad call early in a half inning because there are going to be higher leverage situations later when if an umpire makes a bad call and walks somebody who should be struck out, that's why there's the higher leverage situation because you've put a dude on base. But also, the you know, why people go to baseball games or enjoy baseball more generally and how much that has to do with the need to pay attention to what's going on on the field at any given point or whether baseball is kind of missing the point entirely and the kind of ebb and flow that's described in this paper where you kind of need those breaks to regain a little bit of focus is true for consumers as well. Hmm. 
So I watch two sports mainly, um, which are baseball and hockey, which really couldn't be more different on the attention front. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how much more exhausted I am after a hockey game than a baseball game, which is odd because hockey games have like a finite period of time that they are played and baseball games can go on forever. It seems like they can just never end. And I think Some of it is, I I didn't realize till I was reading the paper, but some of it is kind of this half-ending reset thing. Like, I'm able to reorient my own attention span. And I also, you know, reading this, I was wondering if we're able to train ourselves into, because, you know, we're talking about umpires who, like, are very, very highly trained, highly compensated people who are at the top of their game uh, as far as, like, paying very close attention. And they're the only, really the only people in the game who are on 100% of the time yes. when there's gameplay. And I was wondering if that's the kind of thing that I can develop, <laughs> you know, a- as a person. Like, is attention not just a finite resource, but also one that you can level up with, which I think the answer is obviously yes. We, it's something we all learn to do as we grow up. But that was something that I thought would be an interesting effect here because it struck me that calling a, a World Series game requires nerves of steel in a, addition to everything else because you know <laughs> people are watching and they're going to be very angry and you're going to go down in history and not just be forgotten in the crush of hundreds of games per year. Yes. Ask me about game three of the 2019 World Series. <laughs> Um, this is, but the the thing about like uh, about you know leveling up on attention actually reminds me of something else that's like that's potentially more interesting to Weeds fans who are not baseball fans, which is the labor politics of all of this, right? If you mm-hmm. think about it, this whole paper is based on a data set that is how good are your employees at doing their jobs, and are yeah. they are they giving you their utmost at any given point? And it, it's especially because umpires are in this weird situation where like it's not clear whether this needs to be part of their job for technological reasons. The labor politics of this amount of data gathering being used for surveillance of individual umps is a very real concern. Mm. I just think, you know, I, I mean, obviously this is this is research about baseball umpires, but it's one of these things where you, you look at something from a competitive sport because it is a well-defined uh, set of outcomes, right? But the, the application is to life. And like the the question of half-assing it is always a difficult one to raise, right? I mean, you think about any management situation and nobody's ever going to tell you, eh, nobody cares if you do a good job on Tuesday, you know? Yep. But it's intuitively true that like if you try to be at 100%, 100% of the time, you're going to fuck up. And right. it makes more sense to like try to max out at the times when it really matters. And, you know, if you train to run, I mean, if you look at me, you can tell I can't run for shit. But like there's there's a strategy to pacing yourself, right? And like you're so disappointing you Leeds fans who have been picturing you for years as <laughs> like classic ectomorph. <laughs> but you know, it's like anything. I think like anything where we do study it rigorously, right? Like it tends to support the view that like trying to be at maximum effort all the time is actually not a good idea, but it's such a like Uh, uncomfortable like concept to raise, right? It's like, like an editor is not going to tell you like, don't work too hard on this piece. Like (laughs) it's not important. I'm just giving you this assignment for no reason. Um, But like, it's probably true, right? That like you, you need to sort of pick your moments, right? Like these umps, you know, and even uh, like Alyssa was saying, part of the rhythm of watching baseball 
is that you can see the moments build in a way that isn't as true in like basketball or especially hockey, right? But like, because so few goals are scored mm -hmm. and a scoring opportunity might develop out of nowhere at any time. It's at least like ex ante, like every minute of the game is crucial. Whereas with baseball, like you can tell, like our runners getting on base, right? Our people in scoring position, the stakes go up and it's you know it's part of what makes an interesting rhythm but it's also part of how the umpires can be effective but a lot of life it's like harder to say right like like when are the big moments coming uh, and you can't tell it was a big moment until you've already made a mistake uh which you know is not really the optimal way to do it yeah i mean i'm also thinking about this in terms of what we were talking about earlier about like the the experiential value of this as recreation right because like Everything that you guys are describing makes baseball a an unusually good sporting event to see live if you're not a baseball fan. Like, I wouldn't know, but it seems to me anecdotally that people who are not massive baseball fans are a lot less likely to watch baseball on television all the time. But they'll sometimes go to games because, like, sometimes it's a nice day and you just want to, you know, hang out with friends and sometimes pay attention and sometimes not. And that is what I'm not sure... You know, the question of whether people who are into it something enough to do it for a living understand more casual relationships that people can have with things is true in baseball as it is in the film industry, right? Like, yep. if you are paying attention to baseball because, like, it's your job to pay attention to baseball, maybe you're more sensitive to places where it seems like the pace of the game is slowing down and you kind of are projecting onto more casual fans, oh, they think this game is boring and it's dragging on too long and that's why they're less interested than they could be, when instead they're trying to project like a totally different kind of experience. Or if you're thinking of baseball primarily as a series of revenue earning opportunities, like Alyssa, when you're talking about the kind of things that happen, like the between inning breaks is a chance to reset. This is something I feel like there, I feel like there were more when, when I started going to baseball games, a lot of those were here are how we keep the kids engaged because kids have short attention spans. So we're going to do things for them. And now they're much more, they're sponsorship opportunities, they're revenue opportunities. And mm -hmm. those are, those will sometimes involve the fans, but they won't be as like family oriented, kid oriented in the same way. You're deciding that the experience of fans is less relevant to whether you make money or not, but it could end up kind of cutting against this alternate way of seeing a like a live baseball game as a choice people are going to make, which is less about I want to go. I really got to be there in person because it's going to be super exciting and I won't want to miss it. And more about, you know, it's a form of summer recreation that allows you to be kind of outside, but not wholly unstructured. Yeah. Yeah, it also strikes me that the MLB's move sounds a lot like studio notes that are given to movie directors, where it's like, there's too much downtime at this moment, let's cut it, people will get bored. And I wonder how, this might, this total speculation, I don't know any data about this, but I do wonder, given that we were just talking about a streaming first world, I do wonder how much of this is driven by data they have about people watching it and where they turn off the show, the, the show on tv the show the game like you know if they know that information and they want to keep you engaged because they want to show you ads as much as they can and charge a high price for that there is a need to change the structure of the game just as there's a way to change the structure of the entertainment in order to keep people hooked which in baseball has a different valence from streaming anyway yes. because the data that baseball has on consumers is going to be from its dedicated network and apps which are yes. already selecting for hardcore fans yeah Exactly. 
someday maybe we can watch the games in movie theaters the dream (laughs) bring it all together okay um, that was great thank you so much Alyssa thanks as always to our sponsors and to our producer Eric Janakis and the weeds will be back next week after the July 4th holiday because we love America Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.